people are the most consequential and dangerous forces on Earth. Well, personality psychology is about the nature of human nature. It's about people. And wouldn't that be useful to know? I mean, it seems to me, I can't, I can't think of a more important problem. You're listening to the Science of Personality podcast, brought to you by Hogan Assessments, the global leader in personality assessment and leadership development since 1987. Your hosts are Hogan Chief Science Officer and world-renowned personality psychologist, Dr. Ryan Sherman, along with Hogan PR Manager and resident storyteller, Blake Lepp. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Science of Personality podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Sherman, along with my co-host, as always, Blake Lepp. Say hello, Blake. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Science of Personality podcast, episode 75. Today, Ryan and I are joined by Hogan Assessment's founder and president, Dr. Robert Hogan. Of course, you all know Dr. Hogan is the international authority on personality assessment, leadership, and organizational effectiveness. And as an iconic classic observer of American psychology, his theory-based work in personality measurement has contributed to the development of socio-analytic theory, which maintains that the core of personality is based on evolutionary adaptations, and that personality is best measured by examining one's reputation rather than one's identity. We recently had Dr. Hogan on the podcast to talk about Sigmund Freud and why his work matters. Today, we will talk to him about Carl Jung and why his work matters. Also, as we mentioned in previous episodes, Hogan employees commonly refer to Dr. Hogan as RT, which are his first and middle initials, Robert Travis Hogan. So when you hear Ryan and I saying RT throughout the episode, trust that it's a habit and Dr. Hogan is who we're talking about. It's a, it's a tough habit to break whenever you're so used to calling him RT. So with that, RT, would you mind saying hello to our listeners before we get started? Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks a lot, RT, for joining us as always. Uh, always great to have you on here. The Freud episode that, that uh, Blake mentioned earlier, which if you haven't heard it, uh, we would encourage you to check that out as well, was a big hit. Uh, we got a lot of positive feedback from our listeners on that episode. So uh, it really makes a lot of sense to continue talking about some of these early personality theorists, the psychodynamics folks, uh, and Carl Jung really is uh, the, the next guy on the list. Well, this also is a conversation, you know, we, I think if you listened in last week, we had a, a, an episode that we were doing live from PSYOP, uh, and we have more of those coming uh, in the coming weeks. But uh, this conversation actually started at PSYOP and has continued via email with uh, multiple people. And so it just made even more sense to, to have this episode and do it, uh, you know, shortly after we did the Freud episode. So uh, RT, so happy to have you on. And I guess for my first question, where does Carl Jung rank in the pantheon of personality theorists? Actually, I'd like to add a note or a comment before we get going on this. Personality, personality theory is about the nature of human nature. It seems to me it's one of the most important problems we can possibly think about. Personality theory used to be the, the, the celestial center of academic psychology, the center of Every, every undergraduate major was the, the core of the course was the, this course in personality theory. It's gone completely away. It has to do with the kind of habits and politics of academic psychology. But I think part of our, our my mission in this in running Hogan assessments is to try to restore people's interest and in, get them to refocus on or think about personality theory. And it's about the nature of human nature, which is, as we, as we know, 
people are the most deadliest and most invasive species in the history of the earth. People are what are going to kill everything. Wouldn't it be useful to have a, an owner's manual for human nature? And that's what personality theory is all about. And in, and in the discipline of personality psychology, personality theory starts with Freud and Jung. They're the two great figures. Freud and Jung are the Plato and Aristotle of personality psychology. They, they said they had something to say about almost every single important issue in the discipline. So how are they? I mean, every, I would say all personality theory is an extended footnote to, to Freud and Jung. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting, RT, because uh, as I mentioned to you before we started recording here, uh, in my undergraduate training and graduate training, we spent a lot of time talking about Freud and, and a fair amount. Uh, I feel like I got a fair amount of depth on Freud and did a fair amount of reading of Freud's own work. Less so for Jung. Why do you think that is, or why do you think it is that um, modern programs spend much more time on Freud than Jung? Well, I think there, there's a little cause and a big cause. Um, the little cause is that after Freud and Jung broke up, the Freudians devoted themselves to trashing Jung. They, they went after him with a, with a vengeance, including calling him an, an anti-Semite. And they, and they did a pretty good job of, of destroying his reputation. I think the larger picture is just the overall anti-intellectual culture of American life. People are not interested in ideas. They're just interested in, in what Taylor Swift's most recent album contains. Uh, so there's a, there's the overall decline of culture in America is part of it. And then, of course, the relentless attack by the Freudians, I think, finishes him off. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a pretty good point. I mean, I, I, I also just wonder um, it's to what extent uh, just being first, right? Just being sort of seen as the first versus, you know, uh, you, you, I, I mean, I don't know. I, it's kind of interesting because, I mean, you mentioned Plato and Aristotle, of course, these, these two uh, seem to get equal play in, in sort of intellectual philosophical culture. Whereas uh, it just doesn't seem to be the case for, for Freud and, and Jung. It does seem like Jung is always considered secondary. In fact, I know entire personality courses that will spend in, a big chunk of time on Jung or on Freud and then say, well, then there's all these other people. There's, there's, you know, Karen Horney and there's Carl Jung and there's uh, Adler and, and they, they sort of lump them all together. Um, but you really think Jung stands out on his own. Oh yeah. The problem is he's also was a terrible writer. Mm -hmm. And he was, a, he was pretty much of a loner. He, he didn't build a school. The way Freud systematically cultivated a following. Freud was a hustler. Freud was seriously, into making money and becoming famous. He worked very hard at building a, a following in a school. Jung was a, pretty much of an introvert who, who uh, uh, you know, stuck to himself. There's a Jungian Institute in Geneva, Switzerland, but, you know, you have to know about it to want to go there. Jung was not, Jung was not interested in becoming famous. Freud was desperate to become famous. So they're, they're in I mean, if you want to be famous, if you want to be famous, you need to want to be famous. If you don't want to be famous, you're probably not going to be so famous. Well, it looks like Freud and Taylor Swift have something in common. Yeah, they have a lot in common, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and, and to the Swifties out there, don't don't come at us because uh, we're we're meaning this in the the nicest possible way. But um, Artsy, can you talk a little bit about the relationship between Freud and Jung? Yes. Well, they were Freud was about twenty years older than Jung. Uh, Freud was worked very hard at becoming famous. He was pretty much internationally famous in the right around the turn of the century. And uh, he was trying desperately to build a group, a school, a, a following around himself. 
Jung was a rising star in Switzerland. Jung published a couple of papers on the, on the word association test, which he invented, and, uh, and, and, and caught some people's attention. Freud thought it sounded very interesting. He invited Jung to Vienna to try to recruit him to the school. And they, they, their first meeting was quite famous. They, they apparently just sort of glommed onto each other, and they talked nonstop for 12 hours. They didn't stop to eat, they didn't stop to pee. They just talked for 12 hours. A very intense relationship for several years. And the, the intensity of the relationship is documented. In a, in Princeton University Press has a collection of their letters, which is pretty substantial. It's quite it's very interesting reading. So very, very tight relationship for a number of years. They were playing each other. Young, wanted, you know, a young guy wanted to be famous. The fastest way to get famous was to hook on to somebody like Freud to build your reputation. Freud, at the same time, was quite interested in building his own school, and he needed everyone around him was was a Jew. He wanted he wanted a prominent or famous or well known non Jew to be part of the source to expand things. So the psychoanalysis would be seen something other than just a, a Jewish cult. And so he, so they both were there in a sense playing each other, but, but you know it was a profitable relationship. Um, so they, so they, they interacted quite substantially for a number of years. In 1909, uh, Clark University uh, in, in, convened a, a psycho, the first ever psychoanalytic congress in, at Clark University in, in Massachusetts. And they invited Freud and Jung as the uh, sort of the star, the keynote speakers. That was Freud's only trip to the U.S., by the way. And uh, so they sailed from, I can wear a Bremerhaven or someplace to, to New York in 1909. And on the trip over, this was the beginning of the end for the relationship. On the trip over, which would probably take a couple of weeks back in those days, they spent their time analyzing one another's dreams, which is, from my point of view, is kind of sick, but that's what they did. And, and Jung reports that he could understand Freud's dreams just fine, but he thought Freud had no clue as to what Jung's dreams meant. And that therein lies an important source of intellectual difference. But at the same time, what Jung figured out when Freud was telling his dreams, Jung figured out that Freud was having an affair with his sister-in-law. He had moved his sister-in-law into his house along with his side, and he was getting on with his sister-in-law. And... Jung wanted to get him, wanted him to admit that's what was, that's what the dream meant, and that's what was going on. Freud wouldn't do it. He said, "I can't admit that." He said, "I would risk my authority. I would risk my authority." And Jung said, "That's when you're off forever." So he decided that Freud was a liar, and, 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 and so that was that was the beginning and the end of the relationship. They, the relationship never really well, uh, survived that. Well. Well, RT, I had always heard that, you know, uh, that Freud saw Jung as sort of like the, well, the, the phrase that I had always seen used is the crown prince, right? The crown prince yeah. of, yeah. of psychoan uh, psychoanalysis, that he was going to be the future of psychoanalysis and that this was, um, that, that was this, this powerful relationship between the two is almost like father son. Right. But that would only be the case if Jung adhered to Freudian party line. Jung, they're both very smart. Jung had his own ideas, and increasingly he became unhappy with Freud's ideas and more concerned with his own. So, Yeah, and that's really interesting. I had not heard this uh, this part about the, the analysis of dreams. In fact, I actually didn't even realize that Jung made that trip to him. Again, to, to the testament about how little Jung is discussed 
uh, in, in modern academia. I didn't even realize that he had made the trip with Freud. I knew Freud came to America for that one trip, but I'd never heard that Jung came with him. Um, I, I did. Did Jung make other trips to the United States, or or you know, was this I, I his only? I think he mostly just stayed in Switzerland after after the after the break. Oh, he traveled. He was a big. He he, he was interested in indigenous people. He went to Africa a lot. And I imagine I you kind of think you might have spent some time with American Plains Indians, but I don't know. Well, I'm curious, Artsy, how do Jung's views differ from Freud's views? Well, you know, they were actually very different people. Freud was a really well-trained scientist. Freud was a, you know, he could have had a, I mean, he worked in a lab, a, physio- lab, a physiological research lab, where there were Nobel Prize, where it turned out Nobel Prize winners. So Freud was a hard-nosed, positivist scientist. And Jung was way, way more more intuitive. He was kind of a touchy-feely guy. Who, uh, Jung's mother was kind of a mystic and sort of a witch. She had poltergeist phenomena. She used to talk to animals. Animals used to come and talk to her. Uh, they both sort of saw things and heard things that other people didn't see. So Freud was an arch rationalist. Jung was way, way more intuitive. Everyone said Freud did not understand people. He just, you know, the joke, Freud was consistently blundering and would, would make gaffes and, and insult people. And the line was, what do you expect from Siggy, comma, he doesn't understand people. On the other hand, my line is that Jung understood too much. There's this really famous meeting. So they, the Vienna Psychoanalytic Society would get together once a month and to, to talk about psychoanalysis. It was Freud's way of building a team, building a movement. And at a fam- famous meeting of the Psychoanalytic Society, they had an argument. They, they increasingly came to argue. It's a famous argument. Freud accused Jung of being a mystic. And Jung said, no. He said, I just know things. And he said, for example, now this is real. This really happened, apparently. So Freud accused Jung of being a mystic. Jung said, no, I'm not a mystic. I just know things. And Jung said, for example, he said, how did I know that was going to happen? And he pointed over to the chest and there was a huge explosion inside the chest. There was blam. It wasn't, he hadn't planted a bomb in there. He just said, how did I know that was going to happen? And blam, it went off. Freud passed out. He huh. was this great big guy. He picks up, he picks up Freud, carries him over to the couch and he put him down on the couch. Freud's eyes flutter open. He looks up at Jung and he says, "Father murderer." Ahead of us, anyway. But but Jung did that all the time. I mean, he, he knew things. You know, he said, "How did I know that?" Blam, it happened. So, so they were very. One was an arch rationalist. One was a kind of a mystic. Uh, Freud didn't understand people. Jung understood people really well, and uh, they were just very different in that regard. So, as I said, as I said, then after their break. The Freudians went after Jung with a vengeance. They wanted to cast him out. Of the, I mean, the, the, the disciples around Freud were delighted that Jung fell out because he had been seen as the crown prince. They all wanted to be the crown prince. And they went after him in all sorts of ways and just tried systematically to destroy his reputation. He himself, Jung married a wealthy woman. Freud was a hustler. Freud was like Chomsky and Walter Michel and Steven Pinker. He was a hustler. He was trying to build a, a career, saying outrageous things and getting famous. Jung was really more of a kind of a recluse and a scholar. And he, he just he married a wealthy woman and kind of more or less semi-retired and just spent the rest of his life writing and studying and thinking. Freud, on the other hand, continued to, to militate and promote. 
Well, RT, can you talk a little bit about their views on the unconscious? Because obviously the unconscious plays a big part in psychodynamic theories. And yeah. In what ways were they similar and different? This is, this is actually a really important point in, from a systematic point of view, I mean, from a, you know, kind of a point of view of personality theory. They both thought that most of what we did was unconsciously motivated. And, and I, I genuinely believe it. Can I say just a word about that? Sure. Absolutely. This all has to do with, with the French Revolution and... French Enlightenment and French rational, rationality and Napoleon's efforts to spread French culture across the rest of Europe. You know, he attacked Austria, he attacked Russia, he attacked Germany. So, and there was as a re reaction against French rationalism. There was this whole cult of German Romanticism, which the, the, French, the French were emphasizing rationality and thought and analysis, and the Germans were emphasizing emotion, feeling, and, and, and the unconscious. So Freud and Jung, they're both part of that, that German kind of romantic move, react, reaction against French rationalism. And you never hear much about French in the area of psychoanalysis, do you? Because they, they, they really do, you're into this whole rational thing. Anyway, so they both believed in the power of the unconscious as, as, a, as a principle determinant of everyday life. But they had very different views about what was going on there. For Freud, he's kind of inconsistent here. For Freud, what's in the unconscious is what you put there. You, the contents of the unconscious are thoughts that you've systematically repressed over time. You just can't think about that anymore, so you push it down into the unconscious. So, you're, so in my view, the Freudian unconscious is like a closet in which you stored all these things you don't want to deal with or think about. Mm. Okay. For Jung, on the other hand, um, the metaphor I always use was for Jung. You know, you it's you go down into the basement, and when you get into the where stuff is, and when you get to the basement, you find a tunnel. It goes to the center of the earth, and that's the unconscious. Uh. It's he talked about the the collective unconscious of of, of mankind. Uh, it's it's the collective memory of human species. Everything that's happened over and over to us as a species is stored in the unconscious, and and it's not there. By it's just there. You didn't you didn't get the so he so for from. So Freud, Freud would regard Jung's view of the unconscious as, as completely hopelessly mystical, and Jung would regard Freud's view of the unconscious as, as trivial. It's just things that you don't want to think about anymore. And that's a, that's a very huge difference. And by the way, Jung's right. And so one of the most important parts of psychoanalysis is the Oedipus complex. Around age five, boys start fighting with their fathers and trying to run off with their mothers and and then there's the, the, climate, the, the threat of castration anxiety, and then you repress the whole thoughts of the, of the superego and the epistemic. It all goes away, and it's just there in the unconscious. Jung's, Jung's question would be, why is the Oedipus complex universal? Why does it always happen over and over again? And the answer is it's an archetype. It's part of the collective unconscious. So the most important single element in Freudian theory, the Oedipus complex, is in fact a piece of Jungian theory. It's, it's an archetype. Do you guys follow that? Did that make any sense? Well, I, I think one of the big questions there, and I, and I think you know, one of, uh, I would say, my sort of almost uh, misunderstandings or criticisms, I don't even know which of those it is, of young, or, or that some criticisms that people might levy against young is they might say, well, you know, what, what are you talking about? Where does this come from? This is just made up. 
And I think maybe that was Freud's point of view. But I think when you take, as, as Blake said at the outset, you know, uh, like a sort of a socioanalytic perspective, which is really grounded in evolutionary theory, right? If you really think about human evolution as having this collection of, and it's not just true for humans, it's also true for other animals too, right? Having this collection of response patterns, this collection of thoughts, this collection of feelings and emotions that have to come from some past history. Maybe that's really what Jung was referring to without, yeah, yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah. So for Jung, the unconscious is the collective memory of the human species. So certain things happen over and over and over and over again until at some point they're just recorded down there. So, for example, um, religion. I mean, that's his big thing. Religion is just an archetype. Religion is a human universal. It's everywhere. It's not just that religions are that every society, every known society has a has from antiquity to the present has a religion. Religion is a cultural universal. The really what Jung would say it's not that per se. The fact that the form of these religions is all the same. Mm. Underlying structure is the same. So think of think of the the, the myth. He, he wrote a famous essay called "Myth of the Birth of the Hero," in which he shows that the hero myth takes exactly the same form across time and cultures. Forever, and it's in the Jesus story is just one example of of that myth, which is divine child born in obscure circumstances, raised by humble parents. This is just over and over and over again throughout time. You see the same story: early display of, of unusual powers. You know, little little Arthur pulls the sto- the sword out of the stone. Right. Uh, Hercules kills some kind of monster snake when he's a baby. You think, and then. Then rises, has a flash of fame, and then is betrayed and, and is sacrificed. That, that's just that that story just occurs over and over and over again. Well, how can that be? Uh, I mean, well, I mean it, there are two questions: Does that story occur over and over again? And the answer is yes, it does. And the second question is why is that? Well, Jung would say it's just you know it's just there. It's part of the species, but collective unconscious. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that's really interesting. You could come up with tons of examples, even in modern, quote unquote, modern superheroes. Although some people might say, "Yeah, how modern is Superman?" Superman. It's the same kind of thing, right? It's exactly. Just, yeah. It's a, it's literally. I mean, Superman is a classic Jungian archetype. It really is. I, mean, I remember reading about Superman in the first place. Holy shit! There grows Jung again. <laughs> uh, well, Artsy, I'm. You mentioned archetypes earlier. So, what were some of? Uh, you Actually, let me give you another example. I love this one. This is the one I used to use when I taught this course. What are people afraid of? You guys, what are you afraid of? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a standard stochastic progression. First of all, people are afraid of being alone. Yes, they mm-hmm. are. Now, just a little bit, you know, because we're a group living species. We don't like to be alone. Second, people are afraid of being alone in a strange place. Okay. So now you're alone. And now you're in a strange, unfamiliar circumstances. Okay, well, then you begin to feel you're alone in a strange place in the dark. Mm-hmm. Now, I promise you, you're alone in a strange place in the dark. You're going to feel uneasy. You will. There's, I don't care who you are. You're going to. And then how about alone in a strange place in the dark and a sudden loud noise? Mm. You'll sell, scare the shit out of you. Okay, <laughs> alone in the dark in a strange place, a sudden loud noise. And an object that looms up, you'll pee your pants at that point. Well, I, I, and, and I, if you think, interesting thing, why is that? And the answer is that there's something called the dino felix. 
This ancient cat used to feed on people. If you were alone in the dark, this strange place, and there was a loud noise, something loomed up, it was a cat coming to get you. Yeah, well, I mean, that's uh, most horror movies or, or even just scary moments in non-horror movies. Like if you think about a movie like Jurassic Park or something like that, right? I mean, that's what it is. You're you're pretty much, you know, by yourself. Uh, it's usually nighttime. It's There's some noise. Uh, there's <laughs> uh, uh, that looming kind of feeling that, I mean, that, that happens in, in almost every horror movie and then... And then, boom, somebody dies. Well, that's Jungian psychology in action. That's pretty interesting. It's really interesting. So, you know, so Freud, you, as Jung might have asked Freud, why is the Oedipus complex universal? Why Freud was really interested in politics. Freud really, Freud, both of them did therapy just to earn a living. When they had enough money, they stopped doing it. Freud was mostly interested in politics. He, wanted, he was particularly interested in the nature of political leadership. And, in, and he was interested in characters like Perone, Mussolini, Hitler, mm-hmm. and these are and 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 his, his most important books: Totem and Taboo, uh, Group Psychology, and Analysis of the Ego, uh, uh, Civilization and its Discontents. These are all books. These are all attempts to understand political movements and political leadership. And Jung would say, "Why are demonic leaders all alike?" Yeah, Freud. So, so what was Jung's view on religion then? Well, I mean, that's what he was mostly interested in. This is, this is of course, where the, their most powerful difference occurs. For Freud, Freud thought religion. This is a really interesting topic. Freud thought religion was just essentially a delusion. But when Freud was talking about religion, Freud was not talking about Judaism. Freud was talking about Catholicism. Freud remained loyal to his, to his, his, his or religious origins his whole life. He, when he was stigmatizing religion, he was talking about he hated Catholics. So mm-hmm. Freud thought religion was a delusion. And said Freud, to the degree that you are re- you're religious, you are by definition neurotic. Because, that's because religion is a, is, is a delusion. In contrast then, Jung, so he just thought it was, you know, it was a neurotic symptom. Jung took religion quite seriously. Jung's, Jung's father was a Lutheran minister who, who, quote, lost his faith and killed himself. So for young, you, know, you kill yourself because you lost your faith. That means that there's some pretty powerful psychological motives associated with religion, right? Mm-hmm. If you're willing to die for it. So, so young took religion very seriously, and uh, and, and thought the, and he thought that people. Well, this is a quote. I love this quote. And irra- and irra- He said an irrational commitment to a politics. You know, some kind of political theory to a history, you know, of your tribe or whatever, or to a religion, was a therapeutic necessity for mankind. That is to say, it was therapy. People need to believe in something, and religion mm. provides an answer. They need it, they, and they not only need it, they're going to do it. So his view was to try to determine the psychological circumstances in which it was intellectually permissible to make that irrational commitment. You're going to have to do it. How can you legitimize it? How can you make sense out of it? So... For Freud, to the degree that you're, you're religious, you're by definition neurotic. For Jung, to the degree that you're not religious, you are by definition neurotic. So it couldn't be a more powerful or more dramatic uh, difference of opinion. So as you put it, RT, I think you know it's people are all about getting along, getting ahead, and finding meaning. The religion yeah. is the meaning. Yep, yeah. yeah. that's 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 the piece of Jungian theory that, that I. Because I think it's true. Religion is the most powerful force in human affairs. Look around the world. What's going on? 
I mean, they take different. I mean, what is what is Putin, the key to Putin's success? He's aligned himself with the Russian Orthodox Church. Mm. He's wrapped himself in that. You know, what, I mean, what do these guys do? Uh, Jung's most popular. Jung, Jesus. Uh, Trump's most popular base of support is is, is the fundamentalist Christians in America. Mm-hmm. Religion is the most powerful force in Jung. It's also, I think, the most destructive force, but it's the most powerful force. And Jung, Jung wasn't saying pro or con, he was saying it's just a fact. Then, given that it's a fact, how do we deal with it? And I think I think that's absolutely right. So it's very interesting to me. And so back in the day when I first developed the, the MVPI, I had there's a scale called tradition. And that's basically, are you a believer or not? And, and I, one of the items on there was, religion is the most powerful force in human affairs. You know, true mm-hmm. or disagree. Well, it was quite interesting. The, uh, the Scandinavians made me take it out. They said, you know, we're officially an agnostic or atheistic society. You can't ask that question. But it's a perfect, I really disagree. It's a perfectly rational question. You know, why is religion so powerful? Or why is it so important? Or, okay, even putting it differently. Is religion the most a powerful force in human affairs? Bet your ass. And then why is that? Well, I don't know why that is, but Jung had something to say. Well, well, it's interesting that Jung also talked about a politics and a history because I think th- that might be one of the sort of counter arguments yeah. today as well. People are becoming less religious today than they used to be, but I don't think that means they're less committed to yes, uh, exactly. some therapeutic necessity, <laughs> whether yeah. that's politics, history, or whatever it yeah. is. I my. It's like everybody's got to believe in something," said W.C. Fields. He said, "I believe I'll have another drink." <laughs> <laughs> that, that's my kind of guy because I, I think I score a two on the tradition scale. Yes, uh, but it's the, the two issues. You know, I mean, there will be things that you really believe in, like <laughs> I, just I don't want to get into that right now. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a whole nother podcast episode in and of itself. So, yeah, uh, I'll let you psychoanalyze me at, at, an, at a later date. That's okay. <laughs> so, RT, uh, one last question before we get out of here, but I, I think it's the most important one: is is how has you impacted modern culture? Well, I mean, the first thing, his first contribution was the word association test, which is very very clever. Right? Did you guys know what that is? Yes. You say, here's a word, you know, father, and then you have to come back with the first word that comes to your mind. Well, that turns out to ask some very interesting questions. It works. It actually does work. It's fairly popular among clinical psychologists. So we invented the word association test. But but his biggest impact was is is in the form of the Myers-Briggs type indicator. And the MBTI is the most popular personality inventory in in the history of assessment. It's hugely successful. It's, a, it's, it's kind of a party game, but the underlying idea is quite interesting. It, it all started with Jung trying to make sense out of the differences between Freud and Albert Adler. It, so Adler was part of Freud's circle, but Adler, at the time that he was part of Freud's circle, Adler was the most famous analyst in Vienna. He was way more successful and way more famous and a lot more interesting in many ways than Freud. And, and they would argue all the time. And Jung was trying, well, why do they argue so intensely? And he concluded that... Adler, Adler was a socialist. You see, he concluded Adler was an extrovert. Adler was primarily interested in what's going on outside there. And then Freud was an introvert, which is true. Freud was primarily interested in what's going on inside your head. So the difference between Freud and Adler had to do with where they directed their attention. So Jung said, now, you direct, where are you going to direct your attention? In, inward, Freud, outward, Adler. And then when you're there, what are you going to pay attention to? 
Well, one person could, some people are going to pay attention to facts, and some people are going to pay attention to feelings. Mm-hmm. What you see when you look there, and, and for Freud, it would just be, you know, what are the, what are the, what are the data points? For other people, it's what does all this, what does all this indicate? And then third, once you've acquired, so where do you direct your attention? What do you, what, what, what information do you acquire when you direct your attention? And then the third question is, how do you process it? And, and you can process it either analytically, just what does it mean? Or you can, or as Freud said, uh, Jung said, you can filter it through your unconscious. You can look for the meaning in the fact. What, what, you know, and then finally, what do you do with the results of all that fourth stage? You know, now you, where did you direct your attention? What did you look at? How do you, you acquire information? What do you do with the information required? And then finally, what, what's the final conclusion? And that's that whole thinking, feeling thing. What does all this mean in an analytical sense versus what are the implications of this for whatever ball? So you get the four dimensions of the, of the Myers-Briggs. So the point here is that Jung developed the first information processing theory of personality. His argument is the indiv- what you see in everyday mm-hmm. life, the individual differences in personality are a function of how people acquire and process information. I think that's brilliant. I think it's, it's true, too, also. Yes. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it that way, but I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, we we talk about uh, sort of per, the, these processes in personality, and I think a, a lot of modern personality psychologists get the whole thing wrong. They think that personality causes you to think in certain ways or to feel in certain ways. And I think Jung's point, which is one that we would agree with here, is that no, the the, the way you process information, the way you feel about information. Is is exactly what it means to be different. That that's what it yeah. means to have a different personality. It's just a, quite a profound insight, and, and, it's, and I think it's absolutely right. This is the first, first and only information processing theory of personality, perfectly contemporary. It fits right in with artificial intelligence, right? <laughs> right, right. Well, well. I mean, in fact, uh, that is uh, uh, going to be one of the big questions for artificial intelligence stuff. For example, what 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 would an unconscious for an artificial intelligence uh, uh, system or being or thing uh, be like? I, I don't, I don't think we really have good answers to that. Where do you focus your attention? What kind of material do you acquire when you fo- when you focus your attention? What kind of material do you acquire? What do you do with it after you acquire it? And then, I mean, you know, how do you process it? And then finally, what are the What's the output? I think it's pretty straightforward. Well, I, I would say that one of the key differentiators here, and I think we've maybe mentioned this in a previous episode, but I'd be interested in your take, RT, is that you know one of the things that makes humans fairly unique among animals, but certainly unique compared to, say, computers, is that they think about themselves. Yeah, the metacognition. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's that's what this this model is all about. I mean, this is a metacognition. Right. So Jung was a very smart guy who wasn't very good at self-promotion, and then he had the Freudians on his tail, you know, trying to trash his reputation. So, and, and of course, he married a wealthy woman, so he didn't have to hustle. <laughs> uh, it looks like he had a lot of children too, though. I didn't. Uh, I don't know much about about their. He was a horny devil. Go ahead, Blake. Freud and uh, Jung's uh, recognition score on the MVPI. Oh, well, Freud would be max and Jung would be zero. <laughs> that sounds about right. Based on this conversation, that's yeah. that's what I would have guessed as well. So, But if um, you well, take ideas seriously, you know, as in ideas, is it a different idea? Is it a new idea? Is it an original idea? Is it an idea that has consequences? I mean, Jung was a source of every bit as many important, interesting, consequential ideas as Freud. 
or is anybody else in the history of the personality psychology? I mean, one more time, all personality psychology can be seen as, a, as an extended footnote to Freud and Jung. Well, RT, this has been a, an awesome conversation. I'm curious, do you have any closing thoughts before we, we wrap up the episode? <laughs> Nothing cheerful and optimistic. That's that. <laughs> so why don't we let it go at that? Well, look, I want to say thanks so much, RT, for coming on. Always great to have you on the podcast and really great to get your insights on some of these, uh, I think, really forgotten topics in personality psychology. So th thanks so much for sharing this with us today. My great pleasure. And thanks for inviting me. Yeah, RT, I echo Ryan's sentiments. And uh, we look to have you on again in the, uh, in the near future to, uh, to discuss another, another subject because our audience really seems to enjoy the episodes whenever you, you come on and join us. So really, really appreciate you taking the time to, to have this discussion with us. Okay, then. thanks, guys. And that does it for the Science of Personality podcast, episode 75. Be sure to join us in two weeks for another fun and informative episode. Cheers, everybody. This has been the Science of Personality podcast brought to you by Hogan Assessments. You can access all podcast episodes on our website, scienceofpersonality.com, or on the streaming service of your choice. See you next time.